One of my favorite poets, Mary Oliver, uh, has a little poem she calls Instructions for Living a Life. And it says, uh, pay attention, be astonished, tell about it, which is a pretty good set of instructions. Well, let us pray. Good and gracious God, we thank you that you have gathered us into this place. We thank you that we have this place and this space to worship this morning, that we are so blessed to have at least three areas that we can worship together. Um, And we pray that as you've gathered us in into this intimate space, you would gather us together in our hearts as we listen to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, it's good to be back after uh, a few weeks away and some different travels. And um, I have to say, I just couldn't resist this passage from Exodus this morning. Uh, It is not in the lectionary. Uh, I picked it for this morning. Apologies to Ken, uh, but great thanks for your reading. Uh, and I chose it in light of all the construction that were happening, that's happening in the sanctuary uh, this month. You know, there are all these passages in the Bible that we read, and we're like, how could this possibly be relevant for us today? Um, it's kind of like the sections of the Bible that, you know, we're going through, and we look at and we say, uh, right. And then we just turn the pages to pick up the rest of the story and get back to the interesting plot lines. Well... With all the construction now and to come in the sanctuary, this passage and this section of Exodus seemed especially relevant for us today. So let me put it in context. Um, The Israelites have escaped Egypt in the Exodus. They've crossed the Red Sea, and now they're wandering in the desert where they wandered for 40 years. Um, And they've reached the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses, the great leader of the Israelites, their liberator, ascends up to Mount Sinai where he gets the Ten Commandments. And this part of the story is familiar, right? The Ten Commandments on top of Mount Sinai. But before he gets those stone tablets you may have passed over with God's commands on them, God tells Moses and the Israelites that they need to create a place to keep it, a sanctuary for the people to worship God amidst all of their wanderings. And so God tells them exactly how to make this sanctuary, this tabernacle. And this is just one section of a whole seven chapters, which I spared you from, (laughs) of instructions about how to make this tabernacle. God tells Moses precisely in the same detail how to make the Ark of the Covenant. You remember that from Raiders of the Lost Ark? Um, Which would hold the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. And then how to make all the curtains the furniture, the table, the basin, the lampstand, the altar, how to build the framework. Um, uh, which we heard today, and he even how to make all the vestments for the priests who would lead worship in that space. And God even says that he's already selected craftsmen from the Israelites, two guys named Bob Topper and Gary Sprig. <laughs> oh no, that's, uh, that's Bells Alel and Oholia, which I think in Hebrew are translated to Bob and Gary. <laughs> to do the work. And so I couldn't help but think about this passage as I was walking through the sanctuary this week and seeing all the work and the the picture on your bulletin covers actually pictures from the frames that are underneath all the stepping that you'll see is closed up now later this morning. 
and as I read this passage, I thought about how Adam Jacob, our resident architect, digitally measured the entire sanctuary for us, entered all that data into his CAD design program system, and created and then refined the architectural drawings, did a 3D mock-up for us, um, and all the planning and preparation that has gone into improving our altar area in the sanctuary. And the countless, and I do mean countless, meetings that went into developing them. And as I stood in that space this week, behind where the altar will go, where we'll serve communion, where we'll read the word and have the band situated, it all feels so worth it. But it would have been nice if God had just reached down and given us the plans too, just like he did for the Israelites, just saying. Now one might wonder why God goes into such detail about how the tabernacle is made. Seven chapters full. Well, I feel like after this process... Uh, that I know better now that all those details, especially those fine details, go into making something a sacred space. It's about getting the proportions right and the flow and the access and having the space reflect how we worship. One of the themes for me in the improvement process is that the physical space in the sanctuary just didn't quite reflect how we worship together now. Uh, with the band kind of crammed into the corner. Uh, We don't gather around the altar at communion for 1030 anymore. Now we preach from the floor and not from the pulpit. We have lots of different musical groups and activities that happen in that space between the altar and the front pew and so on. And what God's talking about in this passage with all of its intimate detail is how the physical space shapes and reflects our worship. And this tabernacle, too, was portable. Right? The Israelites took it with them when they went from place to place as they journeyed toward the promised land. This is sometimes easier to experience when we are in a different space, uh, when one we're not accustomed to worshiping in, just like we're doing here this morning and we'll do again at 1030 and outside even during summer worship. And certainly the case when we worship and visit other churches, worshiping in different configurations and different spaces can shake us out of our routines, get us out of our usual pews and seats, though the back seats did fill up faster than anything else, just like in the normal one. Um, They get us out of our usual spots in more ways than one and invite us to be more attentive. Um, When I've had the chance to visit different churches, I'm always mindful about how these spaces speak how they communicate something with God, whether they're big or small or stone or wood, outside or inside, ancient or modern. You could say that faith follows form, follows function. It's also a reminder that God doesn't just show up in one place, in one way. Uh, Just before I went up to vacation in Canada, I traveled to California, to Los Angeles and San Francisco for the Zoe Project grant program for young adult ministry that we got. And the trip, they called it, was a mystery pilgrimage. And that meant that the agenda for each day was a surprise. So we flew out to the West Coast not knowing at all what we would be doing each day of our trip. And we only received the agenda for the day to come the night before, sometimes that very morning. And so just as an example, this was one of our days in San Francisco. First, our whole group visited St. Gregory of Nyssa Episcopal Church uh, for morning prayer. 
And St. Gregory of Nyssa is a church that's very much inspired by the Orthodox Christian tradition. And so their sanctuary is kind of in two parts. Uh, And one is a sitting area where the, the preacher preaches, but preaches sitting down. And people sit in two sections, but they're facing each other so they can see their faces and the preacher uh, as he or she preaches. And then the altar area is in another space that's completely wide open with no chairs or anything else. And people stand around the altar for communion. And what's completely stunning about the sanctuary is that as you look up, there are these life-sized icons all around the sanctuary. And if we were in 745, I would have pictures on the screens for you to see. Uh, and I'll share them with you another time. But there are these larger-than-life pe- people and icons that are all surrounding um, the sanctuary space. And so as everybody gathers, and as we, our group, about 70 people, gathered around the altar, we were gathered around with all of these saints from all different times um, gathered around the altar. Um, after St. Gregory of Nyssa, that would have been enough for me. I was good after that. That was pretty amazing. Um, my group went to a place called the Byright Grocery Store in the Mission in San Francisco. That's owned by a gentleman whose family had started the gro- local grocery store back in the day. Um, and it was just like a beautifully gorgeous food and a very neighborhood-oriented kind of place. And so we walked around there and, and looked around in the grocery store. Uh, and then we met with the owner. And the owner had actually started a nonprofit that was designed to teach people how to eat healthy and prepare healthy foods. And so they had another storefront in addition to the grocery store uh, and the creamery, the ice creamery that they had. So we got a little bit of ice cream. Um, they sat us in the storefront where they teach people to cook. And the executive director of the program, uh, who said herself was not religious, said, Welcome to our church. Because as they gather at that table, that is sacred ground for them. From there, and if that wasn't enough, we went down to the park where we had lunch, which we bought from the grocery store. And we met with a guy named Andrew Jones, who had started ministries and Christian social enterprises all over the world. And then after that, we went to a cafe in the mission, and we learned to bake sourdough bread. A San Francisco favorite, right? Uh, And we learned about the starter, and this is a whole other sermon in itself, that this little bit of starter, which at this bakery was 100 years old, which starts the sourdough process. And so we were all there around this huge table in the back of the bakery learning to bake sourdough bread. And we made it, and it came out as this flatbread. And what was cool, that once all the bread came out in the back of the cafe, we used that bread to have communion together. So somebody had the presence of mind enough to get some wine at the grocery store. (laughs) And we had the sourdough flatbread and that wine from the grocery store as our communion. And so each of these were and are or became temporarily for us an altar, a portable sanctuary, a tabernacle where we, the people of God, were gathered together, gathered around the word and meal. And at St. Gregory of Nyssa, uh, I met one of my true writing heroes, Sarah Miles, um, who had served as director of programming there and the director of the food pantry for about 10 years. And among some of her other great books that she's written, she also wrote a book called The City of God, Faith in the Streets. And in the book, she writes this. It's not just inside church buildings that you find God. In the holy city, God is in the temple and dwells among his people. The people cross themselves before lunch in a break room or a school, process down the street carrying pictures of the Virgin Mary, pray in the parks, light candles on their stoops to honor the dead, 
gather with crosses to sing hymns and protest immigration laws. Plenty of poor people in San Francisco, like the homeless guys who build shrines in their encampment under the bridge, converse freely and intimately with God in public. And so do some rich, ostensibly modern people. They hold Bible studies in the conference room of a downtown investment bank or send prayers via Twitter to their coworkers at a tech company. The city might be far less religious than most if measured by the number of people who attend churches, but in the streets, it's the city of God. She says, the sheer unpredictability of the city um, makes, makes it possible. Um, well, my quote is messed up here. But basically, she says that um, the unpredictability of the city lends itself to this way of thinking about God as much larger and bigger and broader than we often think of God. Often we think of God and faith in this sequential notion that it's measured out in baptisms and confirmations and communion and marriage and burial that will happen to people in the prescribed time. But in a city, she says, grace just falls all over the place. And I love that. Grace just falls all over the place. Grace and worship don't just happen at one place and one time when I'm sitting in my one particular seat, but everywhere and always, as I discovered going from the church to the grocery store to the park to the bakery and all the places in between. It is often the case, just as it was for the Israelites, that when we are displaced, we are in fact reoriented to the work of God in the world and in our lives. Time and again, we see in the Bible and the stories of faith in our time that when our religious routines are upended and disturbed, we discover something new about God, ourselves, and the world. In another one of my favorite books, um, An Altar in the World, Barbara Brown Taylor reminds us that when people in the Bible had an encounter with God, they built an altar as a memorial to that experience, as a testament to that experience, and a reminder to everyone who would visit that place afterwards was that this was a place where heaven and earth met and could meet again. She called these places in the Bible in our lives altars in the world. She writes that altars in the world are ordinary-looking places where human beings have met and may continue to meet with the divine more that they sometimes call God. As we reimagine together our main altar area in our own sanctuary and revisit different and new altars here at the church, I invite you to think about the altars in your world, in your lives. Where would you put an altar? Where is the place for you that heaven and earth have met in your life? Is it in your kitchen or in nature, in your favorite gathering spot or with your favorite people in the mountains, the lake, the shore? And there doesn't have to be just one. And what about, of, what about it speaks to you of God? What about its proportions or dimensions and what happens there speaks to your soul and why? When you've decided what that place is, what those places are for you, maybe you'd want to place a little stone there as a tiny altar to remind you that that, too, is holy ground. And so I invite you amidst our own wanderings in these weeks as the sanctuary renovation is completed to see it not as an inconvenience, but as a spiritual opportunity 
a divine invitation to find God afresh in this place and in your lives. Amen.